Day 8 of Totus Tuus' Novena to Mary Immaculate, Star of Hope, with quotes from Pope Benedict XVI's encyclical letter, Spe Salvi, on Christian hope. At the conclusion of the central section of the Church's great credo, the part that recounts the mystery of Christ, from his eternal birth as a father, and his temporal birth of the Virgin Mary, through his cross and resurrection to the second coming, we find the phrase, He will come again in glory, to judge the living and the dead. From the earliest times, the prospect of the judgment has influenced Christians in their daily living as a criterion by which to order their present life, as a summons to their conscience, and at the same time, as hope in God's justice. Faith in Christ has never looked merely backwards or merely upwards, but always also forwards to the hour of justice that the Lord repeatedly proclaimed. This looking ahead has given Christianity its importance for the present moment. In the arrangement of Christian sacred buildings, which were intended to make visible the historic and cosmic breadth of faith in Christ, it became customary to depict the Lord returning as a king, the symbol of hope, at the east end, while the west wall normally portrayed the last judgment as a symbol of responsibility for our lives, a scene which followed and accompanied the faithful as they went out to resume their daily routine. As the iconography of the last judgment developed, however, more and more prominence was given to its ominous and frightening aspects which obviously held more fascination for artists than the splendour of hope, often all too well concealed beneath the horrors. In the modern era, the idea of the Last Judgment has faded into the background. Christian faith has been individualised and primarily oriented towards the salvation of the believer's own soul, while reflection on world history is largely dominated by the idea of progress. The fundamental content of awaiting a final judgment, however, has not disappeared. It has simply taken on a totally different form. The atheism of the 19th and 20th centuries is, in its origins and aims, a type of moralism, a protest against the injustices of the world and of world history. A world marked by so much injustice, innocent suffering and cynicism of power cannot be the work of a good God. A God with responsibility for such a world would not be a just God, much less a good God. It is for the sake of morality that this God has to be contested. Since there is no God to create justice, it seems man himself is now called to establish justice. If, in the face of this world's suffering, protest against God is understandable, the claim that humanity can and must do what no God actually does or is able to do is both presumptuous and intrinsically false. It is no accident that this idea has led to the greatest forms of cruelty and violations of justice. Rather, it is grounded in the intrinsic falsity of the claim. A world which has to create its own justice is a world without hope. No one and nothing can answer for centuries of suffering. No one and nothing 
can guarantee that the cynicism of power, whatever beguiling ideological mask it adopts, will cease to dominate the world. This is why the great thinkers of the Frankfurt School, Max Horkheimer and Theodore W. Adorno, were equally critical of atheism and theism. Horkheimer radically excluded the possibility of ever finding a this-worldly substitute for God, while at the same time he rejected the image of a good and just God. In an extreme radicalization of the Old Testament prohibition of images, he speaks of a longing for the totally other that remains inaccessible, a cry of yearning directed at world history. Adorno also firmly upheld this total rejection of images, which naturally meant the exclusion of any image of a loving God. On the other hand, he also constantly emphasised this negative dialectic and asserted that justice, true justice, would require a world where not only present suffering would be wiped out, but also that which is irrevocably past would be undone. This would mean, however, to express it with positive and hence for him inadequate symbols, that there can be no justice without a resurrection of the dead. This would have to involve the resurrection of the flesh, something that is totally foreign to idealism and the realm of the absolute spirit. Christians likewise can and must constantly learn from the strict rejection of images that is contained in God's first commandment. The truth of negative theology was highlighted by the Fourth Lateran Council, which explicitly stated that however great the similarity that may be established between creator and creature, the dissimilarity between them is always greater. In any case, for the believer, the rejection of images cannot be carried so far that one ends up, as Horkheimer and Adorno would like, by saying no to both theses, theism and atheism. God has given himself an image in Christ, who was made man. In him who was crucified, the denial of false images of God is taken to an extreme. God now reveals his true face in the figure of the sufferer who shares man's God-forsaken condition by taking it upon himself. This innocent sufferer has attained the certitude of hope. There is a God, and God can create justice in a way that we cannot conceive. Yet we can begin to grasp it through faith. Yes, there is a resurrection of the flesh. There is justice. There is an undoing of past suffering, a reparation that sets things aright. For this reason, faith in the last judgment is first and foremost hope, the need for which was made abundantly clear in the upheavals of recent centuries. I am convinced that the question of justice constitutes the essential argument, or in any case the strongest argument, in favour of faith in eternal life. The purely individual need for fulfilment that is denied to us in this life, for an everlasting love that we await, is certainly an important motive for believing that man was made for eternity. But only in connection with the impossibility that the injustice of history should be the final word, does the necessity for Christ's return and for new life 
become fully convincing. To protest against God in the name of justice is not helpful. A world without God is a world without hope. Only God can create justice, and faith gives us the certainty that he does so. The image of the Last Judgment is not primarily an image of terror, but an image of hope. For us, it may even be the decisive image of hope. Is it not also a frightening image? I would say it is an image that evokes responsibility, an image, therefore, of that fear of which St. Hilary spoke when he said that all our fear has its place in love. God is justice and creates justice. This is our consolation and our hope. And in his justice there is also grace. This we know by turning our gaze to the crucified and risen Christ. Both these things, justice and grace, must be seen in their correct inner relationship. Grace does not cancel out justice. It does not make wrong into right. It is not a sponge which wipes everything away, so that whatever someone has done on earth ends up being of equal value. Dostoevsky, for example, was right to protest against this kind of heaven and this kind of grace in his novel The Brothers Karamazov. Evildoers, in the end, do not sit at table at the eternal banquet beside their victims without distinction, as though nothing had happened. Here I would like to quote a passage from Plato which expresses a premonition of just judgment that in many respects remains true and salutary for Christians too. Albeit using mythological images, he expresses the truth with an unambiguous clarity, saying that in the end souls will stand naked before the judge. It no longer matters what they once were in history, but only what they are in truth. Often, when it is the king or some other monarch or potentate that he, the judge, has to deal with, he finds that there is no soundness in the soul whatever. He finds it scourged and scarred by the various acts of perjury and wrongdoing. It is twisted and warped by lies and vanity, and nothing is straight because truth has had no part in its development. Power, luxury, pride and debauchery have left it so full of disproportion and ugliness that when he has inspected it, he sends it straight to prison, where on its arrival it will undergo the appropriate punishment. Sometimes, though, the eye of the judge lights on a different soul, which has lived in purity and truth. Then he is struck with admiration and sends him to the Isles of the Blessed. In the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, Jesus admonishes us through the image of a soul destroyed by arrogance and opulence, who has created an impossible chasm between himself and the poor man, the chasm of being trapped with material pleasures the chasm of forgetting the other, of incapacity to love, which then becomes a burning and unquenchable thirst. We must note that in this parable Jesus is not referring to the final destiny after the last judgment, but is taking up a notion found in Alia in early Judaism, namely that of an intermediate state between death and resurrection a state in which the final sentence is yet to be pronounced.
This early Jewish idea of an intermediate state includes the view that these souls are not simply in a sort of temporary custody, but, as the parable of the rich man illustrates, are already being punished or are experiencing a provisional form of bliss. There is also the idea that this state can involve purification and healing, which mature the soul for communion with God. The early church took up these concepts, and in the Western church they gradually developed into the doctrine of purgatory. We do not need to examine here the complex historical paths of this development. It is enough to ask what it actually means. With death, our life choice becomes definitive. Our life stands before the judge. Our choice, which in the course of an entire life takes on a certain shape, can have a variety of forms. There can be people who have totally destroyed their desire for truth and readiness to love, people for whom everything has become a lie, people who have lived for hatred and have suppressed all love within themselves. This is a terrifying thought, but alarming profiles of this type can be seen in certain figures of our own history. In such people, all would be beyond remedy, and the destruction of good would be irrevocable. This is what we mean by the word hell. On the other hand, there can be people who are utterly pure, completely permeated by God, and thus fully open to their neighbours. People for whom communion with God even now gives direction to their entire being, and whose journey towards God only brings to fulfilment what they already are. Yet we know from experience that neither case is normal in human life. For the great majority of people, we may suppose, there remains in the depths of their being an ultimate interior openness to truth, to love, to God. In the concrete choices of life, however, it is covered over by ever new compromises with evil. Much filth covers purity, but the thirst for purity remains, and it still constantly re-emerges from all that is base and remains present in the soul. What happens to such individuals when they appear before the judge? Will all the impurity they have amassed through life suddenly cease to matter? What else might occur? St. Paul, in his first letter to the Corinthians, gives us an idea of the differing impact of God's judgment according to each person's particular circumstances. He does this using images which in some way try to express the invisible, without it being possible for us to conceptualize these images, simply because we can neither see into the world beyond death, nor do we have any experience of it. Paul begins by saying that Christian life is built upon a common foundation, Jesus Christ. This foundation endures. If we have stood firm on this foundation and built our life upon it, we know that it cannot be taken away from us, even in death. Then Paul continues, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. 
If the work which any man has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. In this text, it is in any case evident that our salvation can take different forms, that some of what is built may be burned down, that in order to be saved, we personally have to pass through fire, so as to become fully open to receiving God, and able to take our place at the table of the eternal marriage feast. Some recent theologians are of the opinion that the fire which both burns and saves is Christ himself, the Judge and the Saviour. The encounter with him is the decisive act of judgment. Before his gaze, all falsehood melts away. This encounter with him, as it burns us, transforms and frees us, allowing us to become truly ourselves. All that we build during our lives can prove to be mere straw, pure bluster, and it collapses. Yet in the pain of this encounter, when the impurity and sickness of our lives become evident to us, there lies salvation. His gaze, the touch of his heart, heals us through an undeniably painful transformation, as through fire. But it is a blessed pain, in which the holy power of his love sears through us like a flame, enabling us to become totally ourselves, and thus totally of God. In this way, the interrelation between justice and grace also becomes clear. The way we live our lives is not immaterial, but our defilement does not stain us forever if we have at least continued to reach out towards Christ, towards truth, and towards love. Indeed, it has already been burned away through Christ's passion. At the moment of judgment, we experience and we absorb the overwhelming power of his love over all the evil in the world and in ourselves. The pain of love becomes our salvation and our joy. It is clear that we cannot calculate the duration of this transforming burning in terms of the chronological measurements of this world. The transforming moment of this encounter eludes earthly time-reckoning. It is the heart's time. It is the time of passage to communion with God in the body of Christ. The judgment of God is hope, both because it is justice and because it is grace. If it were merely grace, making all earthly things cease to matter, God would still owe us an answer to the question about justice, the crucial question that we ask of history and of God. If it were merely justice, in the end it could bring only fear to us all. The incarnation of God in Christ has so closely linked the two together, judgment and grace, that justice is firmly established. We all work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Nevertheless, grace allows us all to hope and to go trustfully to meet the judge whom we know as our advocate or parakletos. A further point must be mentioned here 
because it is important for the practice of Christian hope. Early Jewish thought includes the idea that one can help the deceased in their intermediate state through prayer. The equivalent practice was readily adopted by Christians and is common to the Eastern and Western Church. The East does not recognize the purifying and expiatory suffering of souls in the afterlife, but it does acknowledge various levels of beatitude and of suffering in the intermediate state. The souls of the departed can, however, receive solace and refreshment through the Eucharist, prayer and almsgiving. The belief that love can reach into the afterlife, that reciprocal giving and receiving is possible, in which our affection for one another continues beyond the limits of death. This has been a fundamental conviction of Christianity throughout the ages, and it remains a source of comfort today. Who would not feel the need to convey to their departed loved ones a sign of kindness, a gesture of gratitude, or even a request for pardon? Now a further question arises. If purgatory is simply purification through fire, in the encounter with the Lord, Judge and Saviour, how can a third person intervene, even if he or she is particularly close to the other? When we ask such a question, we should recall that no man is an island, entire of itself. Our lives are involved with one another. Through innumerable interactions they are linked together. No one lives alone. No one sins alone. No one is saved alone. The lives of others continually spill over into mine, in what I think, say, do and achieve. And conversely, my life spills over into that of others, for better and for worse. So my prayer for another is not something extraneous to that person, something external, not even after death. In the interconnectedness of being, my gratitude to the other, my prayer for him, can play a small part in his purification. And for that there is no need to convert earthly time into God's time. In the communion of souls, simple terrestrial time is superseded. It is never too late to touch the heart of another, nor is it ever in vain. In this way, we further clarify an important element of the Christian concept of hope. Our hope is always essentially also hope for others. Only thus is it truly hope for me too. As Christians, we should never limit ourselves to asking, How can I save myself? We should also ask, What can I do in order that others may be saved? and that for them too the star of hope may rise. Then I will have done my utmost for my own personal salvation as well. Let us pray. Holy Mary, Mother of God, our Mother, teach us to believe, to hope, to love with you. Show us the way to Jesus' kingdom. Star of the sea, shine upon us and guide us on our way. Amen. <laughs>